And uh, we are very excited to host a visiting speaker today. So I will actually turn it over to Dr. Michael Layoun to introduce. Hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Dr. Michael Layoun, a cardiologist with the Providence Heart Institute and the director of the newly formed Jack Loacker Center for Cardio-Oncology. It's my pleasure to introduce my old mentor, Dr. Eric Yang, who will be providing us updates in the field of cardio-oncology. Dr. Yang is an Associate Professor of Medicine at the Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center. He is one of the pioneers in the developing field of cardio-oncology, having established the UCLA program in the mid-2010s. In 2022, his program was designated a gold-tier cardio-oncology Center for Excellence by the International Cardio-Oncology Society. On top of all his accolades, though, I think what really has stood out is his gift for teaching and mentorship. He has been a guiding force in leading me to where I am today. It's my pleasure to introduce my friend, Dr. Eric Yang. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Dr. Lorcher, so much for the kind introduction. It's a, it's really a, a huge privilege to be here virtually, and it breaks my heart that I can't be in the beautiful city of Portland. I was just, you know, there a few years ago for a wedding, and I really jumped in when Michael first invited me. I was like, oh, maybe, you know, like we could do this. But one day, hopefully, we can all see each other in person. So, uh, with all the great weather and the beautiful sights and food. So, and uh, Michael, obviously, I'm very, very proud of being a resident. That we were sad that he wanted to head back to his roots in Portland, but he's doing amazing and also spreading the gospel of a rapidly growing multidisciplinary field, which my job today is to impress upon you its importance and relevance to the growing uh, United States population. Um, so my title is called Cardio-Oncology in 2022. The more we know, the greater the unknown. So I'm going to go on a limb here and assume that some of you probably still think of this term as a foreign concept. And you're going, well, what, what is this cardio-oncology term? And why am I talking about cancer as a cardiologist? And I think cancer as a whole, as a field, is probably, and I think this goes without saying, is one of the most rapidly developing, you know, in terms of drug development, treatment, detection strategies, have just really undergone exponential explosion in the past couple decades, leading to a longer and longer and well-living survivor population. And even if you aren't cured of your cancer, you will certainly, you know, people are living longer on many of these therapies, which are less toxic and are easier to take throughout the years. However, what eventually will raise its head is the specter of cardiovascular disease. And what I'm talking about, frankly, is not a novel disease state or problem or a multi or, or a basically a crossover issue. Many of you, I'm assuming, are primary care specialists, cardiologists, hemoc doctors, whatnot. You know, you take care of these patients. You already know many of your patients have a prior history of cancer. But the bigger question I want to ask you all is, well, how much of the patient's cancer history and treatment contributes, has contributed to the cardiovascular disease states or risk factors that you see them, see them for or take care of them now? And if you really, really, you know, dig deep enough, you'll find out that, unfortunately, we don't really know how much it has contributed. Or you might be like, well, wow, this patient seems to have have a much more you know, older appearing heart than their age states because of everything they've been through, expressed in the form of frailty, comorbidities, et cetera. So that is really the whole you know, objective of this field is to really understand all the different endless combinations and spectrum 
of cancer disease states and how their, their cardiovascular trajectory is affected by this field. And unfortunately, the more we know, unfortunately, there's a lot more we don't know. And also, we're also fighting a huge tidal wave of just radical drugs being developed by our cancer colleagues to also stem the tide. And we also have to understand be prepared for to deal with their cardiovascular um, sequelae. So before I begin, here are my relevant disclosures. Um, I don't have any financial conflicts of interest being on the editorial board of Jack Cardio Oncology. Uh, I am, well, we will be the site PI for the atrium trial, which will study abatacept in a randomized controlled fashion with uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis. Um, and I do report receiving uh, consulting fees for Pfizer related to uh, CV uh, designing or proposals related to reducing CVD risk in prostate cancer. So, so the goal of this talk today is really, again, to describe the incidence of the cardiovascular events that occur with cancer and cancer treatments and how it can affect short-term and long-term morbidity and mortality. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the clinical trials that I think are relevant to your practice today and how to diagnose, manage, and treat cardiotoxicity with both historical agents such as anticyclines, anti-HER2, uh, and novel treatments which are newer in the, the pipeline such as VEGF inhibitors and immunotherapy. And again, also really because we don't have a lot of data, how important it is to maintain a multidisciplinary environment and collaborative effort to really manage these special patients because they all have a variety of complex cardiovascular and cancer disease states, and just it requires a lot of dialogue. And I think being in a place such as Providence, you have the advantage of certainly internally communicating with all your, 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 your cancer and CART teams about this. And also explain the gaps in the knowledge of really also on a bigger level, how do health disparities also impact the cardio-oncology patient and what and population and what we can do to improve systems of care to reduce, to mitigate these disparities. So my presentation outline, there's a million things I could talk about, but I'm one of first going to talk about really, you know, a few things, the state of cancer and why it matters and how is the field doing? And then some brief introduction of cardiotoxicity where, you know, we still have yet to really truly understand, you know, what the, you know, the definitions are and also toxicities with targeted therapies. How are we doing from your standpoint? You're like, well, how do we really address this or how do we protect people or reduce the chance of cardiotoxicity? and a brief discussion about immunotherapy and a new disease process, as well as disparities in cardio-oncology and what we have in front of us, which is a lot. So moving on, so why does cardio-oncology now matter? Well, my argument is it always technically did, but as you can see here, you know, for the cardiologists in this room, I won't belabor these statistics, but CVD still remains a global cause of death, and it claims more lives per year than cancer and lung disease combined. And I know there's there was recently Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and there's a lot of media attention on women-related malignancies. But ultimately, in the end, above the age of 65, cardiovascular disease remains the leading cause of death in women, including possibly breast cancer survivors. These are statistics my cardiology colleagues may not be as aware of, is that you know 2019, they projected about almost 1.7 new million new cancer cases, 4,800 new cancer diagnoses each day, and about 1,700 people die a day of cancer disease. The top causes of cancer death, unfortunately, still remains lung cancer, despite the advent of immunotherapy. But overall, you could see here, since the 1990s, cancer death rates have significantly declined. Uh, the, the older people in this crowd, you may, may have remembered that a breast cancer diagnosis, especially in the 1960s and 1970s, was almost a flip of the coin in terms of prognosis. 
And now stage three and below, my breast oncologists treat them like curable disease states. They basically say these are basically curable things that we people can move on later in their lives. And their survival rates are at least 90 some percent. And you can see here with the lifetime probability of both men and women being diagnosed with cancer, both cardiovascular disease and cancer disease rates will continue to overlap into this sort of this chronic disease state. It is sort of this comb combination that, you know, as you as cardiologists know in the in the audience, I'm not revealing any dirty secrets here. We rarely actually cured cardiovascular disease. The best we can do is maintain it. But the same, we're seeing a similar sort of thing with advanced cancer uh, with a lot of treatments that can keep a lot of cancers at bay. So, you know, I think as the United, as the American population and the world population gets older, we're going to frankly see a lot of these, um, we're going to see a lot of overlap with both these disease states. And the question then begins, well, asks it, I ask is, well, how much does the cancer can contribute to their long-term cardiovascular morbid profile? And here is a nice color scheme of both men and women by sex, looking at since the 1990s, the overall decline in, uh, you know, uh, cancer death rates. Um, a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of debate as to what this is due to, probably a degree less of smoking. Um, you know, the screening is something to be controversial of. Even our breast oncologists acknowledge that, you know, best breast mammography and screening has not actually led to de a decrease in overall death, but has just led to detection of earlier cancers. And now we're still dealing with a similar trial uh, with uh, colonoscopy. But I think most groups can all agree on that really the main explanation for this is the development of better treatments as well for cancer. You can see here overall, thankfully, this is going down. So where are these, what are all these patients going to eventually pass away from? Well, you know, I think that basically the bar on the left was CBD, it's going to go up. Although cancer remains the second highest cause of death in the United States, I think as, you know, not only are we dealing with an active cancer population, but cancer survivor population, and therefore they're gonna cross over into the CBD uh, statistics. And, you know, as, as, you know, as an associate program director, and something I train our, you know, we train our fellows to make sure they know all the, you know, the very rare and unusual disease states. But at the same time, the bigger population-based question I have, you know, as a cardiologist is, is, well, how many patients are we going to treat in the United States who are getting older? And by 2030, it's estimated that almost 22 million cancer survivors will be alive in the United States today. And the older they get, they're going to have eventually just basically more cardiovascular disease. And this really calls again for the importance of, you know, becoming more of a preventative, more proactive field and being able to anticipate issues even during their cancer treatments and not throwing away their cardiovascular care to the wind uh, just because they're undergoing cancer treatments. And there's already epidemiologic data to already suggest this because if you look at breast cancer patients who have survived more than 10 years, this Medicare SEER database looked at the top causes of death. And if you, again, if you've survived over a decade, you know, you won't be more likely to die of cardiovascular disease than breast cancer. And our breast oncologists are already telling their patients, they say, you know, you're not going to die of your cancer coming back. You're going to die of a heart attack. And then they dump it in our court, right? And while I love that and I don't mind that, the bigger question then becomes, you know, during cancer treatments, why should we be throwing their cardiovascular care to the wind? You know, it used to be the old mantra of saying, you know, you got cancer, you got to, you know, just take care, just relax, don't do anything, eat whatever you want. I know it's going to make you sick, you know, just, just, just don't worry about anything else. But if for most women, cardio, you know, breast cancer will be a, a, a big bump in the road, but it's something that they could relatively get back to their normal lives and live many years for. 
you know, we know that that still precious few years is important to keep their cardiovascular reserve at the best it can be so they can live longer and better lives. And this study that just recently came out from our colleagues in Hopkins looked at one of the biggest, you know, preventative registries out there, the atherosclerotic risk in communities, the Eric study. And essentially they looked at how cancer also impacted or was associated with a higher degree of atherosclerosis. And they found that with a variety of malignancies, there was overall a higher incidence of ASCVD and as particularly as well in heart failure. And this was even after you adjust for other traditional risk factors like, you know, drinking, smoking status, LDL cholesterol, HDL, um, being on medications, diabetes, et cetera, NSAID use. Even adjusting for those, they saw a higher signal of heart failure as well as uh, cardiovascular disease. So something about either the biology or the treatments is contributing to this. So to summarize, to summarize you know, given advancements in treatments and improved chemoradiation techniques, you know, survival continues to improve and the number of cancer survivors will approach more than 22 million by 2030. And then 67% of adults uh, will be uh, diagnosed with cancer will be alive in five years. Childhood survivors is also another big vulnerable population because of transition to adulthood, increased risk factors, also disparities. You know, it used to be in the 1980s, we'd see these very depressing, you know, commercials and documentaries of, of children dying of leukemia. And that's no longer the case now with stem cell transplant being so good. Now it's brain cancer is the top cause of death in, in children, uh, childhood malignancies. And many will have radiation or cancer treatments with the potential for long-term cardiovascular toxicity. And the risk of dying from heart disease with certain regimens is actually higher than actually getting cancer again. And if you compare to sibling controls, unfortunately, patients with a higher history of chemoradiation are just more likely to die earlier, have a higher rate of heart failure, heart disease, and stroke. So we really need to get together on a, on a, on a large level to really understand how the, you know, the whole landscape of cancer with all its different treatment modalities and different cancers and stages and, and different risk factors influence, can be influenced uh, by one's cancer journey. And also on a, on a media level, again, there's a lot of media attention, potential hype, but also a lot of interest in basically these messages of trying to defeat cancer. And I know, honestly, we're still, you know, probably many, 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 many years away from this, but there has been a lot more open dialogue and collaboration between cancer centers. Uh, the, the mentality of being siloed and just keeping the research to itself has, has gradually improved. And hopefully this will lead to much more, you know, you know uh, innovation discovery. So cardio-oncology, so how are we doing and where do we fit in all this, right? So, you know, Really, I think one of the best ways to symbolize the field comes from this Venn diagram that I adapted from Dr. Corey at Duke University. It really looks at the impact of three major, uh, you know, I guess you could say aspects of the cancer patient and how it overlaps. One, the cardiovascular risk factor disease profile going into cancer treatment. Number two, how does a cancer biology and disease itself influence you know, one's risk of uh, cardiovascular disease. And then what is the treatment they're going to get or when they've come to you as a survivor, whether it was years ago or just a couple weeks ago, you know, what could their treatments do in the long-term or short-term that could affect their, 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 their risk profile? And this overlap is really where we define it as treatment-related cardiotoxicity. And obviously acute toxicity, if you, get it while you're treat, getting treated, 
can affect the access. The cancer doctors are going to stop the drug and say, well, can you deal with this? Or this is a little bit too much, or this is probably got to switch to something more inferior. But not just that, but once you get over your treatments, chronic toxicity, right? If it makes you, if it just destroys your cardiovascular reserve, if you can't even walk, you can't even do anything afterwards, you know, that obviously says a lot about your long-term survival, even if you're cured of cancer, and it can affect your morbidity and quality of life. So what makes this field exciting yet daunting is that for each patient so far, this Venn diagram, you know, has a million different iterations and combinations. And this is why we still have to like adapt more of a personalized approach to each patient that comes into our clinic. And as a clinical service, this has exploded all over the country. Here are some examples of flyers and advertisements I see online or I got in the mail years ago, um, you know, talking about the different kinds of programs and multidisciplinary care, which is a great thing. And here's an example from a program in Ohio talking about sort of the patients that can also qualify for that. But again, it requires a team effort. It is just, you know, an ongoing assessment of risk and benefit for someone who is unfortunate, who may have cardiovascular issues during their treatments. And really one of the most rewarding aspects about this field is being able to, um, you know, carry someone through not just one disease process, but two disease processes with careful discussion with their healthcare team, you know, the nurse practitioners, the cancer doctors, family and friends, social support. It, it really just, you know, uh, it, it's just a wonderful time. Even if the patient unfortunately can't beat the cancer, even from a palliative standpoint, I think there is a huge role in how we do in keeping people out of the hospital, breathing better and feeling better. This is a very outdated map, um, but also, you know, just to give you an idea just of the geographic spread here that, you know, cardiology services have doubled since 2014. I think this print is a little hilarious because it shows UCLA and Cedars is actually in San Francisco. Um, and I know obviously Portland has programs, Seattle has programs now, but you can see that in general that the, the West Coast and mountain regions areas is pretty much like a desert, you know, that we're pretty slow to catch on to this. And already on the East Coast and Midwest, there are tons of programs that, uh, that accompany cancer programs to provide cardiovascular support. However, the big question is, does this improve their outcomes? And that's what something I think we all need to study and be aware of. From an academic standpoint, uh, and also you know, being proud to be on the, the editorial board itself, you know, Jack Cardio Oncology you know, was just debuted as a journal just three years ago now with Bonnie Key as, uh, as, as our, our editor-in-chief and fearless leader. And already within three years, it has an impact factor of 8.4, you know. And while an impact factor does not say everything about a journal, but it does show the interest and need to drive the science of understanding um, uh, cardio-oncology from a clinical, translational, and bio, uh, basic science level. And here are all the uh, articles that came out, even on this debut uh, article deb uh, issue. American Heart Association has also found this intersection to be incredibly important to also talk about, you know, all the different levels of, you know, research initiatives and the need to understand the, the intersection between cancer and cardiac biology. So moving on to cardiotoxicity, you know, learning again, the inadequate definitions. And I don't mean that necessarily in a, you know, a, a, a condescending or derogatory manner. It just shows that we just still don't really quite know what defines it. And many people still stereotypically think of cardiotoxicity as heart failure or cardiomyopathy or an LVF decline, right? Because that's what drove a lot of the original endpoints in, 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 uh, in oncology research when testing new drugs. But my goal is to also tell you all that it's not just about cardiac dysfunction. You know, there's vasco toxicity, there's, you know, there's atherosclerotic disease, um, 
Michael and I, when he was a resident, we taught, we did a review and looked at the effects of fluorouracil and fluoropyrimidines in colon cancer. You know, so um, th there's just so many different unusual things that have been under doses the whole time, but our ability to understand it still remains limited. And what I want to quickly review again is something that just came off the, the European Society of Cardiology 2022 conference at the press where this ambitious document, which is about 182 pages, uh, read at your own leisure, uh, was developed to address really to, to address all the potential types of cardiotoxicities and disease states. And from the evidence we have, most of it level 11C, the best way to address, you know, how to address, diagnose and treat these cardiotoxicities. But in the end, you know, and I feel very strongly about this, being a good cardio-oncologist means basically being a good cardiologist. You know, it's getting a good clinical assessment at baseline, knowing the risk factors both on the surface with cardiovascular disease, but also lifestyle risk factors, and also getting a good understanding of what they've received in the past and what they will receive. And that comes with time and practice. But you have to basically try to figure out, well, based on their risk profile and the treatments they're going to get, what is the likelihood that they're going to overall, you know, have problems? And it, that's the thing. It's not one size fits all protocol. And, you know, some people may disagree with me on this, but this is why I hesitate to initiate, you know, set algorithms within our EPIC system because it's just, you know, there's just too much variety and the data changes so much. And you just have to tailor it based on what you think is going on or how closely you think a patient needs to be monitored. And we know, again, getting a good cardiovascular history is important because, you know, the multiple hit hypothesis, which was stated by, described by Lee Jones at Sloan Kettering a few years ago, especially with breast cancer patients, show that pre-existing CV risk factors is in general strongly predicted for CV injury after chemotherapy, thus making your risk much higher. You know, ideally you want to control your risk factors, but your cardiovascular reserve takes a hit both directly and indirectly, directly with the medications, with the treatments, right? But also indirectly, right? You don't eat as much, you feel sick, you know, your anemia and your kidney issues, you know, prevent you from, or liver issues prevent you from taking your ACE inhibitor or your statin. And you're in general, you just don't, you know, you're just not as active as you are. And really also, we don't know whether the, you know, our treatment guidelines that are run in our cardiology societies apply to the cancer population. But really, especially if it is a prognostically favorable malignancy, let's say like um, prostate cancer or, or, or breast cancer, you know, I really try to tell patients to have as much normalcy in your routine as possible and not just kind of frankly be sedentary, stay on the couch and kind of sit out your, you know, side effects. To do whatever you can to mitigate those issues is incredibly important. And this, again, this is more of the, I guess you could say, the ejection fraction centric aspect of cardiotoxicity. But I think it's also important to point out a couple of things. Uh, the ESC guidelines point out that symptomatic cancer treatment related cardiovascular cardiac dysfunction or CTRCD doesn't have an EF, you know. Notice how it is classified by symptoms. Like most things, heart failure is not an EF diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis, right? You can have heart failure preserved and reduced and mal-reduced ejection fraction, but how they present is really what drives how severe the degree of dysfunction is. But we do also acknowledge that patients getting certain drugs like anthracyclines, which are known to cause alveolar dysfunction, much of it asymptomatic, that's when they decided to, you know, uh, uh, put it into more fine detail about um, mild, moderate, severe. And I'm happy to say that by the time the EF is less than 40%, it's probably pretty severe, you know, 
And because if something that, you know, something that toxic has caused your heart failure to decline, you're probably uh, potentially at an advanced stage. And our, our job is with all the monitoring is to, re to prevent that from happening or intervening with medications or stopping the medications if necessary. And looking at all the classes, which I won't have time to go into, but going from the historic, from anthracycline, HER2 target therapies, to the modern medica medications such as RAFMEC inhibitors, VEGF inhibitors, used to treat a variety of malignancies and multiple myeloma, you know, to a certain degree, they're all associated with some degree of cardiovascular sequelae. And this is why we have to be very careful and just, you know, and know that, that to work with our cancer colleagues to make sure that, uh, that these risks are attenuated or aggressively treated during that time. And even with better treatments and less toxic regimens nowadays, you know, if you look at a lot of modern studies, the rate of LDF decline or heart failure remains still elevated. And this is why, in general, that we need to be vigilant about making sure that this happens, you know, and also to a certain degree to jump on it so they can continue their treatments. It's not just to diagnose and go, aha, it happened. Now we got to do something and got to stop everything. No, the goal is to find ways that they can complete their treatments. Because what is an EF of 45%, you know, with a New York Heart Class 1 patient with no symptoms? Uh, you know, if you can't finish your breast cancer treatment, you're more likely to die of breast cancer. That's really going to be problematic. And this, you know, this this, this uh, guideline is, you know, free and open access. Anyone can download it. But I think the important teaching point for the clinicians in this uh, audience is really to emphasize again that, you know, one of the biggest things of anthracycline chemotherapy is important to, to point out is that um, most ejection fraction drops occur within the year after treatment. Even with all the hematologists and oncologists I work with, almost none of them order an echo after treat. And that's really when the EF actually is the most vulnerable and tends to drop. And patients could be asymptomatic for months to years. And if you deem someone to be high risk, it is reasonable to check the ejection fractions more carefully with anthracycline use. But definitely EF at baseline and then after treatment is important. And also additional echocardiography, depending on your preference and assessment of risk, is not unreasonable. Biomarkers is also something that can help predict cardiotoxicity. Um, but the problem is also you have to be aware that, you know, it can, you have to know your systems of care. Is your system capable to, of, of addressing a positive high sensitivity or trypanomyelitis assay without causing undue panic and, and, and inappropriate activation of, you know, testing and, and diagnostic utilities such as angiography and whatnot. In general, this is something that general should just drive, you know, referral to a cardio-oncologist for aggressive care and cardioprotective medications. And some of you may be already kind of already aware of this. I'm going to touch upon this very briefly. But the reason why I, we bring this, I bring this up is because, you know, this was actually being, this is actually being seen on med school test prep now. Um, but, you know, the old sort of, uh, sort of the classification of type 1 versus type 2 really is really kind of, I think, an outdated and oversimplified measure here. And, um, you know, you can see here that we know that anthracycline cardiotoxicity can potentially be reversible with aggressive treatment. And one of the classic studies by Dr. Cardinali, which looked at, you know, a three-fourths women population, half of which had breast cancer, they looked at echoes very carefully each time they were getting anthracycline treatments. And they found out that, again, this was a study that showed that most EFs dropped after treatment. And even if you started aggressive medical GDMT or goal-directed medical therapy back in the day, this was, you know, 2000, like almost a decade ago when they did this study, um, you can see here that the EFs don't entirely recover. They stay a low normal 50%. And we don't know why that is. 
that's something we're still, and I have quite, quite a few of these patients in my clinic. And, you know, from a tread heft standpoint, I don't take them off their GDMT because I have actually seen cardiac dysfunction worsen after they've come off of it. Also, if you combine anti-HER2, unfortunately, your long-term risk of long-term heart failure also is just as, you know, can be really elevated in this Danish retrospective cohort of uh, almost 10,000 patients. So again, the type one, type two divide is really, I think, really, in my opinion, should not be used. It's over, you know, it's also, there's a lot of classification creep that a lot of people will use to kind of say, oh, it kind of looks that when we don't really even know the true mechanism. So I would hesitate and always, you know, use more, you know, drug specific toxicities instead. And again, I don't have time to go over all this, but there are multiple other vasculotoxic effects, prothrombotic aspects of treatment that we all need to be aware of. Know that really, you know, the population that you treat in your cancer center, know what their, you know, strengths are, the, the highest volumes that they deal with, and know the cardiotoxicities that they come across. And another, I think, provocative trial that also pushes a point that we're probably not really keeping a good eye on cardiovascular tox effects in the testing arena is this study done by Dr. Daniel Addison, one of my colleagues at Ohio State University who runs uh, the cardio-oncology program over there, where he and his mentee looked at about, uh, Janice Bonsu looked over 123 drugs, uh, cancer drugs that were tested in clinical trials that are now FDA approved for use uh, in cancer. And they compared the cardiovascular event rates to one of the biggest, you know, uh, primary prevention, you know, sort of um, uh, epidemiologic looks at heart disease, the multi-ethnic uh, study of atherosclerosis. And they found that overall compared to these trials of people with a natural course of disease, they underestimated or fewer events were seen in these clinical trials by almost a factor 2.6. So that was sort of an interesting finding that kind of raises a couple of questions of whether one, are they just really you know, recruiting super, super non-comorbid patients, which is not realistically you know, reflective of the real world population after these drugs come to market, or are they not, or is there just not being enough oversight looking at actual monitoring for cardiovascular event rates? Because even if without these drugs, these patients are having a lot less lower event rates of MIs, heart failure, stroke, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a lot of work to do in the pre-drug development phase as well. And that's not necessarily to shut down the drugs. It's really, again, to know which patients are vulnerable for these life-saving therapies. So moving on to targeted therapies, right? So I'm gonna move away from the, some of the older treatments to sort of the newer treatments. Why is this important? Because one, this is something that many uh, cancer patients can live many years for with the simple use of a pill. And these are vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitors or VEGF inhibitors. They're part of the tyrosine kinase inhibitor class, which spread among multiple sort of cancer disease states and indications. And this has really been a game changer for the general urinary space with you know, advanced renal cell, uh, bladder and also liver cancer, because before then, you know, the only drug I'm aware of that was available was interferon, which was toxic and didn't work. And these drugs now have prolonged survival, where many people can live with advanced disease for many, many years. And what it does is that you know these 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 uh, drugs bind to the kinases that are responsible for tumor angiogenesis. And the problem is, however, though these are in a sense, um, you know, uh, one of our cardio oncology colleagues kind of labeled them as dirty drugs because. You know, while they're marketed inhibiting certain kinases, they still can cross-react with a variety of other kinases, you know, in the heart muscle, vascular tissues that could also cause some undue effects. And your cancer doc colleagues already know about this because really the biggest, you know, known cardiotoxic effect, which also potentially could also reflect cancer response, is hypertension, which can almost occur in up to half of these agents. 
Uh, cardiac dysfunction is also a known issue, although we don't really know how to screen for it. But we do see asymptomatic LVF decline uh, in up to a quarter of patients. So that also requires close monitoring as well. And the mechanisms are varied, but they probably uh, emulate many of the processes that drive pulmonary arterial hypertension, as well as classic congestive heart failure and hypertension over time. Here's an example of one of my dear patients who had stage four metastatic thymic carcinoma who responded to, to sinitinib. But like clockwork here, you can see that within two to three days of starting the drug, she would do like a two to three week on and one week off vacation cycle. You know, her diastolic would jump up to over 100. She'd start getting headaches and shortness of breath. And we had to come up with a very tailored strategy of making sure she would go up on blood pressure medications on the day she'd be on medications. She was able to maintain her disease stability for three to four years before she unfortunately progressed. Uh, unfortunately, she failed other lines of immunotherapy and other VEGF inhibitors, and I think she is now in, in uh, sort of in hospice discussions. But to give you an illustration of someone who could live a normal life for four to five years with some good blood pressure management, frankly, can mean the difference, a world of difference for patients and their families in regards to quality of life. And it's really incredible to see how a lot of these cancers, where you kind of think is you know basically hospice the day you meet them. They can live for many years comfortably and well uh, with minimal treatments and, and pills or just you know, very intermittent infusions uh, to, 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 you know, to, to uh, have a good life. And really our goal is to attenuate ongoing cardiovascular risk with that. An analysis done by Ron Wattillis and colleagues at Stanford also looked at essentially that most of the agents are associated in their GU cancer clinic with a higher rate of systolic and diastolic increase compared to baseline. So, you know, that's something usually our GU cancer doctors are aware of, but they may not have the ability to control the blood pressure when it gets really, really severe. And although this is a retrospective analysis, interestingly enough, in multivariate analysis, they found that calcium channel blockers and potassium-fearing diuretics were actually a lot more effective in lowering uh, blood pressure, as they are in general as a whole. Now, cardioprotective strategies, how are we doing with them, right? That's the thing, right? You're like, Eric, that's nice and all to show all these like crazy side effects, but what can I do about the patient that is at risk? Like what, how does this affect my everyday practice? And our goal here, again, is to really prevent this unfortunate situation of this young woman in her 20s, who by pure chance, I happen to read both their outpatient echoes. Um, and yes, I agree, this, this, these studies probably would have been better with <clears throat> definitive or echo contrast. But you can see that within two to three months of starting induction therapy, your EF drops to like less than 20% with pericardial fusion. And guess what? She has to stop everything and she's probably not going to do so well. And what are some of the agents that have been known to protect or keep this from happening? Right? And I'll go over that briefly. The first one is probably a drug most of you are probably have never heard before, unless you are within the cardiology space. It's dexaroxazate, right? So it basically is an iron chelating agent that reduces the formation of iron anthracene complexes. It basically is the exact opposite mechanistically of anthracycline's toxic effects, especially with top isosomerase 2 beta antagonizing, you know, the DNA damage induced by doxorubicin. However, within the adult realm, it has a very narrow indication. It is specifically approved for advanced metastatic breast cancer for patients who have received a really high amount of doxorubicin, already 240 milligrams per meter square, which is now what we consider the high-risk cutoff, right? Um, but interestingly, you'll see it more amongst our PT mock doctors use a lot. Why? Because lymphoma, sarcoma, they get a ton of anthracyclines, especially for their size. And, you know, initially there was some historical concern of getting AML, MDS, but my colleague Saro Minion at City of Hope has basically disproven this concern. 
And you can see this meta-analysis done on the right that was published in Jack Cardio Oncology, looking at all the, you know, all the studies looking at dexaroxazine in heart failure, sorry, um, I'm sorry, uh, looking at the instance of heart failure undergoing uh, anthracycline treatment for breast cancer. And you might be thinking, well, if you, re, if, you minute, if you attenuate the effects of anthracyclines, couldn't that make the treatment of cancer less effective? And these trials also show that there was no significant impact on overall survival or the recurrence of cancer with this treatment. So the problem is, however, is that, you know, this is not a cost-effective strategy to offer all women or all patients undergoing anthracycline treatment. We still don't know, frankly, who was vulnerable. And some of us will offer it for someone who has already become cardiotoxic uh, in any realm, whether it's hematology, lymphoma, leukemia, you know, but it's something that also not even our adult cancer colleagues are necessarily aware of because of its rare use. But it's really, if you look at a randomized control child perspective, it is truly the most effective drug we have in our armamentarium. Now, some of you are going, well, what about a shotgun approach? Shouldn't everyone, you know, who's about to get anthracycline, should I just put them all on, you know, metoprolol, succinate, or carvedilol to start? So this, this question was studied in the CICSI trial, which was a study looking at um, about almost 200 Brazilian women with HER2-negative breast cancer. So they did not get trastuzumab or Herceptin or pertuzumab or any other anti-HER2 treatments, but they all had received anthracyclines. And this population was randomized to both carvelol versus placebo and titrated up as much as they could um, tolerate with the endpoints of looking at a greater prevention of a 10% or greater reduction, uh, EF, um, and also they measured troponin levels. And unfortunately, they only, the only statistically significant thing they found between the two groups was um, troponin I elevation, which hopefully they will track long-term as to what it means. But you could see here that interestingly, the EF drop that was significant was still pretty high in both groups, 13 to 14.5%. So unfortunately, again, for a low risk population, you know, prophylactic cardioprotection does not seem to be effective. And if you look at a meta-analysis of overall neurohormonal, you know, you know, treatments, randomized controlled trials, you know, the overall benefit is a whopping 4%. I can't even tell 4% on reading an echo difference. So you know, obviously it's limited by significant heterogeneity, um, but again, it shows that we still have a lot of work and understanding to really identify who would truly benefit from a cardioprotective strategy. And translating over to CTR, you know, to the ESC guidelines, again, these were low risk populations. So now in general, that if you really want to try to prevent the really the best data that we have that is limited is that if someone is at very high risk, that they already have pre-existing heart disease or they have LV dysfunction, you know, the goal really is to try to see if you could have alternative strategies that can have the same degree of efficacy in cancer survival for treatment efficacy. But if you already have a reason to put them on beta blockers and ACE or ARB or dexaroxane for protection, you should consider that. Now, it's interesting that this includes statins, but with the recent you know, trial that came out in a New England Journal of Medicine evidence by Dr. Hundley and colleagues to prevent trial, which I think was one of the more rigorously well done statin randomized control trials, there was no benefit. And so in my mind, I do not regard statin as a cardioprotective therapy. Now, if you need to give it for other reasons, known CAD, dyslipidemia, high ACV risk, certainly you should do so, but not with the goal of saying, oh, well, I'll prevent your ejection fraction from decreasing. I then want to kind of uh, turn over again to, and also uh, probably a term that, you know, I think we are trying to get our oncologists to buy in is the concern, the, 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 the concept of permissive cardiotoxicity, right? 
So if your EF drops below 50%, I think historically while on, you know, Herceptin treatments, I think a lot of people be like, oh, we got to stop. But then there are some small phase one trials, including the scholar, the scholar trial done by my colleague Daryl Leon and McMaster's in Canada, su suggest to say, well, do you really need to stop if there's no heart failure, right? Meaning there's no clinical signs of heart failure. And I think if someone's EF drops on surveillance, this shows that, this was one of the studies that shows that you can actually tolerate GDMT and most patients have a good likelihood of being able to continue their one-year treatment course as long as they don't develop uh, clinical heart failure. And it is not a reason to stop treatments because we know that there is worse outcomes associated with delays or stopping breast cancer treatments. And our goal is to get them on track back as quickly as possible. So in my practice too, if the ejection fraction starts to drop or even stays between 40, 50% or even the 40%, you know, we see them very frequently go up on their beta blocker ACE inhibitors and really aggressively try to keep them on stand and try to resume it as quickly as possible. And we have been successful in that approach. Now, going over to immunotherapy, right, really one of the big game changers in the cancer arena. You know, it was first approved by FDA, a uh, total of six ICI drugs approved for at least 14 different malignancies. Market is projected to grow to $7 billion in 2020, and estimates of up to 44% of the U.S. cancer population could be eligible for immunotherapy. And many more are obviously involved in clinical trials here involving immune checkpoint inhibitors. So this illustration done by Dr. Tony Rebus at UCLA, who helped develop pembrolizumab or Keytruda, um, in this lab, kind of talks about really the concept of what immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy does. The, the innovative and really cool mechanism of this is really, again, using the patient's own immune systems, security systems, to really, you know, recognize and attack and kill certain cancer types, right? So the reason why our immune system, frankly, doesn't just go haywire and berserk and just start attacking every cell in sight as a security system, as our kind of like our police, is the you know one of the you know the receptors known as PDL1 and CTLA4. Usually, other cells when they bind them, you know, will say like, "Hey, I'm not a threat. Don't attack me." But unfortunately, tumor cells also use the same mechanism to fool the T cells. So if these antibodies, once they get introduced, if the T cells have a high degree of PDL1, if these tumors have a high degree of PDL1 expression, presumably the thought process is this removes the breaks, you know, on the immune checkpoint, meaning that the checkpoint security systems are bypassed. The T cell then recognizes a tumor as a threat and says, aha, you're an issue, you're a problem, you're foreign, I'm going to kill you, right? So um, the problem is, however, that PD-1 expression doesn't just occur on tumor cells, as we alluded to. It also occurs on heart muscles, liver cells, you know, GI cells, you know, that's why they can also get a variety of immune-related uh, adverse effects. But it has been a boon for lung cancer melanoma. And while only 20, 30% of patients respond, that is certainly better than the prior era, which was very, very little to few. And because of this, this has just been an explosion of uh, you know, therapies and indications, first line, second line treatments for a variety of cancers now. This is an illustration done by one of our chief fellows, Ashley Steinmerlobe, uh, looking at just you know, the rapid development of all the therapeutics in this review we did. And again, like I said before, you know, up to 44% of patients in 2018 can now qualify for all guideline indication in checkpoint inhibitor therapy. So what I'm going to talk about next is a rare disease state, but I want to belabor these statistics say, well, Eric, you're going to talk about myocarditis, which is only 1% incidence. You know, why is it such a rare thing we should worry about? Well, if you think about how many more cancer patients are going to get these drugs, the absolute number is obviously going to go up. And that goes to my next talk about this new disease process, which has shown some dramatic effects. We talked about this at our ACC California State webinar yesterday, 
that, you know, um, that in general, because one, there's increased usage and increased recognition and reporting. This, in my opinion, will take over the fulminant giant cell myocarditis uh, you will see in your crashing patient uh, with these really exciting sort of, you know, uh, displays of myocarditis. And in general, we still have yet to kind of really know who's vulnerable, but we know that risk factors involve using two agent therapy. And also it's questionable whether female sex is really a high risk factor, but definitely we've seen it in older age people, potentially also a pre-existing history of coronary artery disease. And the clinical symptoms can be very deceptive. They're very hard because all cancer patients, frankly, can have pain, shortness of breath, fatigue, you know, hypotension. Um, so it can be very hard to tease out. And the timing of onset, however, is very important. We are thinking now that probably 30 to 60 days with the on after the onset of starting treatment and uh, is usually the timeline when people start getting problems. And uh, again, in our registry, led by Tom Nealon at MGH, a three-fourths occurred within the first six weeks of treatment. However, we have seen cases occur anywhere from six to 12 months out. So this is something that we still are trying to understand about its clinical course. While the ECG is abnormal in many patients, there's no pathognomonic finding. And also, if the ejection fraction is normal, that's not frankly very reassuring because it can be normal in 50% of at least a half patients with um, confirmed immune checkpoint hemomyocarditis. Really, the most specific marker again is troponin I, which is obviously a marker, direct marker of cardiac, myos uh, uh, cardiac myocyte inflammation and or damage. And while the BNP biomarkers can be elevated, that's not always the case. Another thing, though, that's really important is that ultimately the gold standard usually requires endomyocardial biopsy. And here's a case of one of our patients. You can see classic CD4, CD8 T cell infiltration. And it loves actually to gravitate towards a conduction system, which is why some of the most bizarre ECGs I've ever seen come from these patients, including myocardium and skeletal muscle. However, it rarely acts in isolation. So I have never, you know, since, um, except for when immune checkpoint inhibitors became in use, asked my fellows and residents when they're, you know, asking someone, about what potential mean checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis and say, well, do they have double vision? And really, I've noted, we've noticed a striking correlation with myositis, as well as, you know, if they complain of double vision, droopy eyelids, you know, asymmetric neurologic symptoms, those need to be really teased out because if those are there, that's a huge red flag that probably this could potentially be um, immune checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis. And uh, again, you also look at the other things that are involved, hepatitis, colitis, dermatitis, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, really, it's really just important to also keep track of these other you know, side effects to bolster your pretest probability. And why is this important? Well, fulminant myocarditis, if it occurs, unfortunately, basically up to half the people, you, know, you have up to a 50% chance of mortality. And um, you know, of patients who survived, you know, if your EF was, you know, took a hit from it, you know, half of the chance it might come back to normal. So, you know, this is a registry that's rapidly evolving. We have now, I think, almost 200 cases now uh, worldwide, and we're still learning more about, about the insights of this drug. And also some of the work that has come out also shows that cardiac MRI, many of you might be like, well, well cardiac MRI tell us. Well, it actually is not reassuring if it's negative, your clinical suspicion is high. It's a nice non-invasive route uh, in lieu of biopsy, but if you do it too early in the case course, you might actually miss it. And this is what our um, a European Heart Journal Society uh, shows. But also the main important thing here is high dose steroids is important. We found in our registry that the initiation of high dose steroids, like one gram solimedrol, is associated with less major adverse cardiac event rates. 
And when to escalate immunosuppression and what to use, we frankly still don't know. Here's a dramatic case again, also written up by Ashley, looking at this, you know, really, uh, really dramatic case of um, BRAF positive colorectal. Sorry, I don't know why I have two echo pictures on there, um, who presented six months after nivolumab used for stage three colon cancer and unfortunately presented with, you know, this horrific looking ECG that suggested an alternating fascicular rhythm with diffuse ST elevations either from acute injury versus pericarditis. Cath was negative, but subsequently presented with a cardiac index of 0.8, requiring both ECMO and impella support. An endocrine biopsy confirmed the diagnosis of myocarditis. And she was on ECMO for about over a week and came off and discharged. And she has now seen me, it's been about two to three years now. She's still alive and doing well with my CD. And we are basically hoping she's cancer free because at some point we think she probably will need a heart transplant. And going back to the ESC guidelines, again, it's really important to really, again, initiate high dose steroids if your suspicion is high. But if they become steroid refractory or they clinically decompensate, again, now it's dealer's choice. What do you use, right? There's a variety of drugs, mycophenolate, uh, antithymic thymocyte globulin, um, abatacept, which is what the atrium trial hopes to study because of its CTLA-4 properties. You know, we don't know. And it's very important to have multidisciplinary input immediately and timely, especially with your heart failure cardiomyopathy colleagues, because in a sense, it's almost like dealing with heart rejection. And that's really important to, you know, also you know, help our understanding discovery and talk about these cases so we can all do better for these patients as the, as the overall absolute number will likely rise. I also finally want to touch a little bit about disparities. As I think the COVID-19 pandemic has shown, you know, has put uh, health disparities, especially in vulnerable populations under a magnifying glass. But obviously somebody, especially someone who's practiced in Los Angeles and also training the county facility, um, it's, you know, something that really is, in front of us, just like cardio-oncology is, but how we make sense of it all is something that we still need to understand with two different systems of care. But we do know that in general, that financial toxicity is higher in patients who both have atherosclerotic disease, cardiovascular disease and cancer. And unfortunately, you know, even in our cardio-oncology clinical trial, trials, there remains a real paucity of either ethnic group identification or socioeconomic status. This was a nice review uh, put together by one of our cardiology-bound chief residents, Rachel Oman, and then Melissa Abel, who's now an NIH Hemonc fellow, looking at this. And what I wanted to kind of just briefly talk about, you know, my whole lecture today was talking about this kind of, this sort of paradigm of assessment and treatment, right? But probably there are many other factors at play that influence this quote-unquote traditional paradigm of assessment, right? We have a lot of social uh, and structural determinants of health, which may influence one's predisposition to cardiovascular disease and cancer. And also many things, including systemic racism, as well as societal barriers that also lead to inability to receive appropriate care and recognition of care. And this is why, unfortunately, many vulnerable patients, including our own clinical inequities, our own implicit biases, or who we see or take uh, as a hospital or healthcare system, can really impact the care of these patients. And we already know in certain groups, for instance, black women are more likely to die more from cancer. Uh, they have more cardiotoxicity and cardiovascular disease going into it. And also certain groups such as Hispanic Latinx and certain API groups are diagnosed with more advanced stages of cancer. And also they respond, certain groups respond more poorly 
uh, to cancer treatments, whether it's because they're sicker when they present or they have more cardiovascular risk factors, we still have to understand that. And obviously there are also childhood survivors of lower social economic status, which are more prone to long-term risk factors and morbidities. The American Heart Association appreciates this and have uh, essentially established a $15 million grant to look at a variety of these, uh, uh, you know, these potential disparities and kudos to many of these centers that are researching this as we speak along with their overall, their national strategically focused network projects. So going on to what we did, so the, you know, I, I love this field because as someone who works a lot with residents and, 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 and fellows, you know, especially residents and medical students who want to do cardiology or hemonc, they know, you know, it is a competitive, it is a competitive field to get into. And when they come up to me and say, well, I'd like to do some research, you know, my question back to them is go, well, what do you want to do, right? All you need to do is ask the question because frankly, the question you ask within cardiology, there's probably no good answer for it, despite both fields of cardiology and hemo being as big and as evidence-based as they are, the intersection is something we still know very little about. And there's a lot of things potentially to investigate. And the NIH also appreciates this, but really the ultimate goal is to be able to design studies that not can only impact cardiovascular or cancer outcomes, but both of them. And I think that is also what we are trying to achieve in the future to be able to find both, because obviously we do think both things influence each other more than we think they do. And here are some of the NIH studies that are currently in play or have already been completed to look at study, for instance, breast cancer. And more importantly, my job and also my goal in talking to you all is how do we find ways to prepare the cardiovascular workforce? There are going to be 22 million cancer survivors in the U.S. in the next decade. And not all of them are going to have cardiovascular disease, but you also have to understand or also be appreciate the nuances of this special population to uh, be able to know and to anticipate potential issues and to drive the research and advocacy to, to, to understand which uh, populations based on their cancer stage, uh, the treatments are getting, which also evolve by the week, are going to influence how they will do in the future. And what I'm talking about is just the tip of the iceberg, right? I think that, you know, you can see here that as of 2017, more than 240 million oncology and medicines of vaccines were in development. You know, as cardiologists, we tend to think, you know, we're pretty badass. We're like the center of it all in terms of, you know, technology and innovation. But we frankly don't hold a candle to really, you know, cancer drug development. It just blows my mind, just all the things that are being tested because of the impetus and, and need and probably honestly fear of, you know, of, 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 of cancer and trying to, you know, treat it. So, so in summary, um, advances in cancer therapy have led to significant increases in long-term survival, leading to a large population of uh, and a special population that warrants more aggressive uh, cardiovascular screening surveillance. The original type one, type two cardiovascular toxicity classification oversimplified model. And, you know, I think toxicity should be agent and drug classic specific for the time being, pending further, you know, understanding and mechanistic discoveries. Traditional heart failure medications and dexroxane have shown protective effects, uh, especially undergoing anthracyclines and anti her treatments, but a shotgun approach is unlikely beneficial, especially in lowest populations. Target therapies like VEGF inhibitors can cause systemic hypertension where we can play a role as cardiovascular specialists in keeping them on treatment and controlling their hypertension. And immunotherapies are growing rapidly in use and associated with a rare but potentially fulminant myocarditis state if not recognized in immediately treated immunosuppression. And again, for the clinicians, scientists, this is a field for everybody. It's ripe for the picking for both basic scientists and clinicians to turn the field from just reacting to things like what I've had to do for years to a proactive, effective, preventative science. And collaborations between cardiology and hemonc 
is really essential to provide optimal cardiovascular care and surveillance for patients before, during, after, and way after cancer treatments with potentially cardiotoxin therapies. So I give a special thanks to both my cardiology and cancer colleagues. Uh, I'm fortunate to work at one of the biggest and best cancer centers in the country. Drug of, you know, it's a, it's an institution of discovery where, you know, uh, Denny Slayman developed trastuzumab as well as, you know, Tony Rebus with pembrolizumab, just to list a couple of drugs that were discovered at UCLA and all their sections do support the program. And above all, it's obviously nurse practitioners who do the day in and really microscopic care of a very complex population, as well as my uh, local uh, and national colleagues in cardio-oncology. And because of the way UCLA Health is, it is not, a, you know, it is a village that requires an, an empire of patients to take care of. And I want to thank all my colleagues uh, for being emissaries at all the different sites within the UCLA Health System, which now reaches from San Luis Obispo all the way down to Orange County in Irvine and also our fellows for their interest and their also their intellectual curiosity in pushing myself to be better, as well as our former fellows who've gone on to move other to start other programs at, at, their, at their careers as well. So again, thank you so much for your time. It's an honor to present, although I wish I was at Portland, and I'm happy to answer any further questions uh, about the presentation. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Many thanks. Many, many thanks, Dr. Yang, for just a, a fascinating and important talk. Um, I want to acknowledge we're nearly at the top of the hour, but we may be able to squeeze in a couple of questions. And also thank you for your training of, of Dr. Leyun and, and other physicians bringing expertise of cardio-oncology here to Portland. Um, thank you. You acknowledged um, that several of our listeners today are in the primary care field. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered, as we look toward 22 million cancer survivors mm -hmm. by 2030, yeah. um, as we are managing uh, primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, mm -hmm. should we be taking a different approach as mm -hmm. opposed to some of our traditional ASCVD risk calculators, for example, yeah. in trying to aggressively manage risk factors in our cancer survivors? That's that's a great question. You know. It's interesting because earlier this year, I was asked by our primary care chief residents to also talk to our primary care track residents about cardiology. And I think, you know, I think there are two major challenges related to the cancer population. Um, and it may not be an issue so much in Providence or other sort of more integrated healthcare systems, but the problem is when a patient gets cancer, right? What ends up happening? All the focus and the impetus goes to the cancer visits. And many primary care doctors, you know, lose, unfortunately, continuity for a few years. And then they suddenly show back up at one point when there's time or energy for the patient to come. And I, I personally think the primary care role is incredibly important, but also my personal fear is also, I think, resource. You know, you're dealing with a high complex, you know, patient where on top of all your other prerogatives and commitments to, you know, dealing with the complex systems, it seems very natural to frankly, you know, obviously defer that to a cardiologist, a cardio-oncologist or oncologist. So I still think it's important, at least in the survivor population or in the chronic cancer population that primary care physicians are aware of some of these long-term effects, okay? I hesitate to really impress upon them that because honestly, primary care doctors have to know so much. I couldn't be a primary care physician and my hat's off to everyone who does it. It's just, it's just so much, it's not a fair system. And this is why kind of at the same time, 
someone like me and more is more than happy to take that mantle and role to educate and help guide that. But I, I don't, I always hesitate to know when, how much responsibility put on the primary care to be aware of these things. And another thing that's also important too that primary care physicians should take advantage of is if you have a survivorship program in your system to really refer patients who are not being actively followed by a cancer doctor, because they can provide also more, you know, um, all encompassing, you know, like overall holistic sort of more like uh, views of long term body system, you know, organ toxicities. Because what I talked about, frankly, is just right here between the neck and the diaphragm, you know, I don't know much else beyond like, you know, kidney effects, GI effects, you know, psychological effects, you know, you know, a lot of these things that survivorships are really good at and they can provide a roadmap for the primary care physician to kind of know what to kind of focus on. Uh, for people after their cancer you know, journey is, is hopefully complete. So I hope that answered your question. It's a very difficult question of where they should integrate already an over you know, an overworked sort of field, you know, so. No, thank you so much. Thanks for the collaboration and probably communication is key. Um, I know certainly our, our residents working in the hospital have been increasingly caring for patients admitted with complications of checkpoint inhibitors. So thank you specifically mm. for the information about myocarditis. Um, yeah. I do want to, yeah. Um, we are at 9.02, so I will let our audience go. Um, feel free to uh, leave us with any parting words, Dr. Yang, but truly um, what an honor to host you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much again, and happy to, if you have any questions, my contact, I think I can send the coordinators uh, my PDF of the presentation. And again, the honor's mine. Thank you very much for having me and, uh, and hope to see you all in person someday. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.